All right, we are in a series called The Kingdom Among Us. And it's a survey in the, through the Gospel of Matthew. We're just looking through um, and kind of going chapter by chapter through the Gospel of Matthew and looking at this idea of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the heavens, which is a central or is a theme that shows up all throughout the scriptures, um, but it is really a central theme of the Gospel of Matthew. And the kingdom, or what we're referring to, uh, Jesus will say, he, he used that phrase, either the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of the heavens, uh, or my kingdom, or the kingdom that um, God or my Father is giving to me, or the kingdom that is near, or the kingdom that is at hand. All of those things, he uses those phrases uh, uh, over a hundred times just in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and so what does he mean by that? Because in the kingdom, that word kingdom, sometimes we think about a fairy tale land, like some place that's far off with, you know, mushrooms and funny looking trees and a castle and, you know, maybe a princess locked up in a tower or, you know, uh, maybe a kingdom underwater called Oceana, you know, with mermaids and, you know, it's, a, it's but it's a place that, that, it maybe has different rules than the place we live, but it's far away. It's a geographical place that we might get to someday. But the kingdom of God, what Jesus was saying, was not a place or a place that was distant. The kingdom is the rule and the reign of God in the man, Jesus. So remember, the rule and the reign of God in the man, Jesus. Jesus came to earth when he said the kingdom of heavens or the kingdom of God is at hand or among you. He is a one-man kingdom. He's a one-man kingdom. And the authority of God the Father, remember Jesus said, all authority God has given to me. He is a one-man kingdom. So in the fall... Adam and Eve were given, they were given stewardship over the planet Earth. And because sin entered in, they forfeited the authority on the Earth. They forfeited God's authority on Earth. But in the man Jesus, he came and said, the kingdom or the rule and the reign of God is now here again on Earth. It's here on Earth. And that's why we see, well, why did Jesus wait until he was 30 to start his ministry? Well, it's because he had to. He was to be uh, our high priest, and he and that was in order to fulfill all righteousness, as Scripture says. Well, in order to be a high priest, one of the qualifications is that you had to be at least thirty years of age, which is why he was baptized in water. That signified his cleansing, and then he was raised up out of the water in the Spirit of God, which was like the anointing oil or the the blessing rested and remained on him, and he received his father's blessing or commission to be our high priest. And then with that resting or that anointing of power, that inauguration of his ministry, he then went out into the wilderness. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness so that he could demonstrate he was not under the authority of Satan. 
Satan tempted him in a number of different ways, and he fought and defeated and was victorious over those temptations by speaking and declaring God's word, his reign and his authority. And he demonstrated that, yes, the kingdom of God, the one-man kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, his authority and his reign was present here, and that he was not subject to Satan, sin, or darkness. That's good news. That's why he was able to then walk around on earth, fully God, but also fully man, and operate in complete authority over darkness and the effects of it, over sin and the effects of it, over disease and sickness and the effects of it. All aspects of the fall and the decay of this earth, Jesus walked in complete authority over it because he is a kingdom of one. Good news He invited us into himself. So when we receive him or when we receive the kingdom, we inherit the kingdom, we step in to the kingdom of one. And so we're looking at what does it look like to receive, to inherit that kingdom, and to live in that kingdom. Not a place, per se, but the rule and reign of God in Jesus Christ in the earth. We're up to Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 25. And Jesus, after this encounter with Satan in the wilderness, he hears and he begins to preach the kingdom, to repent, to turn from sin, and that the kingdom of God is at hand. He picked up that message that John the Baptist was sharing, and then he heard that John the Baptist was put in prison, and he moved from Judea, which was the, the area that was the land of the Jews, the Jewish people. Um, it was the, the land for their tribe and their nation. And he moved from Judea where John the Baptist was, was preaching um, because there was, uh, there was, and he moved to Capernaum, which was the Galilee of the Gentiles or the city of the Gentiles. Now, why that's significant is there were also many Jews living in Capernaum in Galilee. Um, and many of the, the, right, the disciples that Jesus called were Jews. But he moved from Judea, the land that was almost all Jewish people, and he moved to Capernaum and made his home there. That's what scripture says. In the city or Galilee of the Gentiles by the Sea of Galilee. And he called Jewish people that were living among the Gentiles to be his disciples not Jews that were living just among themselves in Judea. See, the Jews that were living in Capernaum actually were looked down on by the Jews living in Judea. They had left the land that was theirs and had gone to a Gentile city. But that was in order that what the prophet spoke would be fulfilled, that He would be a light to even the nations or the children, the nations of Gentiles, to the people living in darkness. And so think about why Jesus, think about this, Jesus went to the land of the Gentiles to call Jews that were living in a Gentile city with Gentile friends 
to be his disciples, to be his followers. The very same Jews that were looked down on by the Jews in Judea. Think about that. And Jesus... walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So Jesus was going to get and invite some people to follow him in sharing the message of the kingdom. Why in Galilee? Why the Jews living in Capernaum, in the city of Galilee, in the city, the Gentile city? And why fishermen? Have you ever wondered why Jesus called so many fishermen? Do you know how many number, how many out of 12 disciples, how many were fishermen? Anyone want to take a guess? Well, in this, in this particular passage, he calls four. But later in John chapter 21, after Jesus is ascended, he comes back to this same sea and he finds all of those who were fishermen Reemployed or continuing in their employment as fishermen, and there were seven. Now, is it odd that seven of the 12 disciples were fishermen? I mean, it's not the only type of employment, the only profession that was available at that time. Why so many fishermen? What was it about being a fisherman that would prepare one? to follow Jesus, especially at that time, and be in the, 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 the early part of sharing the message of the kingdom of God. So I've asked Greg, Greg Payne. Uh, he's a fisherman. And uh, I want to just, we want to talk just a bit about why Jesus called so many fishermen. What is it about fishermen? Yes. And, oh yeah, here we go. Okay, basically, I will be speaking as like a commercial fisherman. And it takes uh, an individual and a group of individuals and teamwork. You have to be able to work with other people. You have to be able to work with other people. You can't get out in the middle of the ocean and expect that somebody's not working, around, working out, turn around and go back to the shore. 
and drop them off. That won't work. So you're so, saying it takes teamwork. Yes. There were no commercial fishing boats manned by one person. There are no commercial fishing boats just manned by one person. That's correct. Because you needed at least somebody to man the sails, somebody to work the nets. Somebody's got to navigate. Somebody's got to navigate. Yes. So these weren't lone rangers. Right. These weren't lone wolves. Right. That's correct. They were used to working together. And also, let's suppose the captain gets sick. The next deckhand's got to step up, and he may be up there in, in the wheelhouse. So everybody on the boat needs to know everybody's job. Just in case somebody gets sick, if they have a heart attack, one person has to learn learn every single job on the boat. Now, what about... So fishermen work really short hours, right? Yes. What time does a fisherman get up to go fishing commercially? Way before daylight. Way before daylight. So do you think Jesus might value somebody who is willing to get up before dawn. Absolutely. And so the first, what does a fisherman do from the time they get up until about midday? Like, what what does that part of the the day look like? You have to prepare your equipment. You have to get over your fishing spot, which is a long travel, because you don't travel in water as you do on a road. It takes a long time to get there. And then, not to mention, once you get there, you have to locate the fish. And that will be your drop. That's a long schedule. Right now, there. right now, so the uh, after when you when you bring fishermen when you, when you bring your catch back around midday, you just put them in the refrigerator, right? I mean, th- there is plenty of frigidaires on every Negative. block here. No, Negative. no. What did you have to do in the afternoon? First of all, you, if you're fishing with uh, fishing poles or nets, you have to make sure that it's stuff that you can really keep and it's legal limits and sizes, and you have to put them inside the little store compartment on the ship or boat, and ice them down. Um, in cer- certain cases, some places, you have to fillet the fish. Because some places, you have to turn the fish over as fillets and that whole body. So it just depends on which application. So all afternoon, these fishermen, after they brought the catch, would actually clean and prepare that catch, pull them off whatever ice they could bring with them on the boat, and then, and then take them directly into town and sell them. Because remember, this was pre-refrigeration days. Um, and then what did they do after dinner? What the fishermen do after dinner? Yeah, what did they do? They had to come back. There was still work to be done. Yes, uh, your job is never done as a fisherman. In some cases, they don't even come back in. Sometimes they're out for several days, and once you eat, you start for the very next uh, fish, the very next fishing. So they're mending their nets and different. Uh, they're mending their nets and cleaning the boat. And so we see from this passage: When was Jesus walking by to call these disciples? What time of day? Evening after dinner, when they were getting ready for the next day, and they're still working. The fishermen were people that were diligent and hardworking and willing to work really long hours. You think that might be valuable? How about? Um, do you always know, I mean, in this time, there was, there was all kinds of radios, um, you know, to call back and ask for help if there was a storm, right? I mean, well, not in this time, not in this day and age. So fishermen might need to be courageous and patient, right, to go out 
onto a, uh, to a place where they could no longer call for help or ask, um, and they weren't exactly sure when storms were going to come up. I mean, it would take a good level of courage and patience because, you know, the first place you look for fish, that's always where they are. No. <laughs> oh, and, man. And a lot of the electronics weren't available back at that time. And Come on, Greg. <laughs> and... Um, Foghorn. You don't get your G- GPS right. and foghorn no. and two-way no radio? Horn or none of that stuff. They had to be courageous, and they had a lot of common sense and ocean smarts. Yeah. So there was um, also a lot of skills involved. Absolutely. Tell us about just some of the different skills. Okay. You had to be hands-on. We've already talked about some of that. A lot of the equipment that's adapted to salt water is always breaking always rusting. If you had a mechanical issue, you would have to fix it. You couldn't just pull over and call in a mechanic and tell him to come and repair the boat. You had to fix your stuff. If your equipment that lifts uh, your nets or if you're like crabbing your baskets and stuff, you got to repair it on the spot. So you have to have mechanical skills. You have to be a explorer. And that's basically what it's all about. I mean, you can't visually look down and see where the fish are at you have to use all the habits of habitat like you see all the little fish jumping and you see birds going after them and dunking in that gives you a little bit of um an illustration that there's something down there and there's a technical aspect of it as well i mean you have to know all the weather and stuff and where the sun sets and you know where it goes down and stuff because sometimes I don't think they had compasses back there either. Come on. So it's like. And how about faith? I mean, just the nature of the act of fishing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you're putting a net. Blind faith. Into a realm that you cannot see. Yes. Yes. Trusting that what you need will get in the net. Absolutely. And if you pull the nets up and you don't get it, you don't stay on that spot. You go find another spot. But usually the fishermen that have been doing it for a while, they can get them. Yeah. They can get them. Thanks, Greg. You're welcome. Really appreciate it. So what... What does this tell us about the human condition? Because Jesus is recruiting these fishermen... He's going to make them fishers of men or fishers of, of people. What, what does this tell us about the human condition? What does this tell us about our own hearts? I mean, we're the fish. Greg, do fish want to jump in the net? People do not want to be caught. I mean, tell me somebody, the first time you heard the good news about Jesus, you were like, oh yeah, baby, I'm jumping in that net. No, that's not how it works. People don't want to be caught. The human heart is resistant to following. I mean, think, what does society tell us over and over? Don't be a follower, be a... Or don't be a follower, be yourself, whatever that means. Don't be a follower, be a leader. You know, leading and following are actually not opposites. Good leaders are also good followers. 
Good leaders lead as they follow well. They recognize authority, both divine and human, both person and code. A better statement might be, don't be selfish. Don't be self-centered. Don't be the center of your own universe. Following well and leading well both help everyone get there. You know, I want to cite some groundbreaking research from the uh, Harvard um, Business Review. And this was the end or the synopsis of a multi-decade study. uh, And they have come finally to a truth that is written in Scripture. Don't you love it when groundbreaking research finally states what is already stated in the Bible? So the title of this study, which tracks a number of uh, leaders that are coming of age under different types of leadership training and what leadership positions they eventually held and the effectiveness of their leadership over time measured by a number of different metrics over an extended period of time. Uh, They looked at a number of studies, and this, this kind of opus was titled, To Be a Good Leader, Start by Being a Good Follower. And here's just a paragraph from the summary of what the researchers found. There is no shortage of advice for those who aspire to be effective leaders. One piece of advice may be particularly enticing. If you want to be a successful leader, ensure that you are seen as a leader and not a follower. To do this goes the conventional wisdom or usual advice. You should seek out opportunities to lead, to adopt behaviors that people associate with leaders rather than followers. For example, dominance and confidence. And above all else, show your exceptionalism relative to your peers. But there is a significant problem here in the research. It is not just that there is limited evidence that leaders are exceptional individuals, but more importantly, it is that by seeking to demonstrate their specialness and exceptionalism, aspiring leaders compromise their ability to lead anyone. The simple reason for this is that leaders are only ever as effective as their ability to relate to and engage with their followers. Without followership, leadership is nothing. In other words, leadership is a process that emerges from a relationship between leaders and followers who are bound together by their understanding that they are members of the same team. Jesus, yes, was calling us to follow first. And to follow first, he would train us to be fishers of men. Fishing is not the only illustration of evangelism that Jesus makes, but it's the illustration that spoke to the people he was calling. Jesus would sanctify their gifts, their talents, their experience, their background, their training for kingdom work. I think that was probably one of the hardest things for me, one of my, the biggest obstacles I had as a young person to really following Jesus is that I would lose who I was. I wouldn't get to be me. 
And because of all the language, you know, it's going to require unconditional surrender. And it's going to require, you know, me to die to myself that he might live. And all that language saying, well, if there's nothing left uh, of me, am I going to be somebody else? Like, I don't want to be somebody else. I don't, who is that person? And yes, it is, it does require an unconditional surrender of your will, your right to be the center of your own universe. But he's not going to let anything go to waste. He put desires and interests and experiences and all those things that you have gone through, he will sanctify, he will make right, he will make, he will rebirth and redeem so that you get to be the you that he saw from the foundation of the world. You've only been tasting the you, a little bit of the you that you're supposed to be. But when he sanctifies it and he, he makes you holy and he makes you whole, then you get to understand that you, you're not a different person, so to speak. You're the real you. Jesus was calling people and he didn't leave all of their experiences and all of their story and all of their gifts and talents and the things aside and say, those have no business anywhere with me. He called and said, follow me and I'm going to sanctify and make all of that work for God's glory. You have something valuable. Your experience will not be wasted, and your story matters. So now let's look at how did Jesus catch people? It says in verse 23, it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Teaching, preaching, healing. Now, these things are typically activities that we would associate with paid church staff, with people that have been to seminary, with people that have had formal or academic training to do it. But who did Jesus call? Fishermen. They were trained in another profession signifying, and, and there were other kinds of people. He, these were, were not only skills, these were tools. These were how Jesus caught people, and they were not formal teacher in a classroom role or formal preacher like a minister at the front of a church role or a formal healing evangelist role. He was saying this is how people are caught because they don't want to be caught. And so let's take a look at what this means and debunk probably some myths around these three activities or the way that Jesus caught people. These are not just for pastors. And we can see that Jesus sent his disciples out early on in pairs, in, later in Matthew chapter 10, in Mark chapter 6, in Luke chapter 10, with authority to teach and preach and heal. Then Jesus commissioned his disciples after his resurrection to make disciples everywhere, to catch and help people become followers through preaching, teaching people to observe his word, and healing power. It's the same thing. It's, it's for the church. It's for the body. It's for all of us. 
And so if we're going to wrap our minds around that and embrace it, we probably need to debunk some of the myths around them. So first, teaching. Scripture says here in the passage that Jesus went everywhere teaching in their synagogues. Now, what is the modern-day word for synagogue? Like, what would you associate with the word synagogue? What's the modern-day equivalent? A lot of say church. So, that's wrong. The temple would be like the church. The temple is where sacrifices are made. Temple is where the priests were employed. The temple is where they did ceremonies and festivals. The synagogue, so according to the Roman census at that time, there was at least 480 small synagogues just in Jerusalem, the city, Jerusalem proper alone. Synagogues were small neighborly dwellings where at least 10 men and their families were willing to associate for that purpose. They were more like house churches or small groups or uh, a neighbor, just a collection, a small collection of neighbors of, of 10 to 20 people. They were a place that was visited daily. You see that all throughout the New Testament. They were in the synagogue daily. Well, people didn't go to church every day. They were in their neighborhood and they would stop by the synagogue to read the scriptures and ask for prayer and get this need met and share that thing and, and talk about the big questions of life. It was, it was a much smaller scale, more intimate, more family-sized gathering. And so we see that Jesus was going everywhere to every neighborhood, to all these places, and he was teaching Well, does that mean he would get up and teach in front of a a class of people? Actually, no. Teaching in this sense was more like the word reasoning. He would go and reason with people. It was common to invite others in synagogues to share in these conversations and discuss what does this scripture mean and what does this big question in life mean. And um, this, this kind of teaching or reasoning is not reserved for a formal teacher role. Teaching or reasoning engages our mind, right? We have been given a mind. Christianity is a rational faith, if you can put those two words together. There is evidence about Christianity because it's real. It, it really happened. Jesus is a, a, a real God-man. He was really raised from the dead. There were prophets of old. There are things. All of the scriptures are true. And there is evidence. And you can, you can honestly come, you can have honest doubts and questions about things that you see and don't understand. And you don't know how to apply this scripture. And you don't know how, what this means. But those questions... You're, you're, do not scare Jesus. Jesus came to your neighborhood and to neighborhoods everywhere to reason with you. And maybe you have something, some, some intellectual block or impasse, whether it's about evolution and creation or it's about um, maybe some of just the social confusion that's going on or, or different aspects of science or different aspects of, of uh, society and how things work. And, and maybe there's a reason or a question or an intellectual impasse that prevents you from following Jesus fully. He's come to reason with you. Maybe you have friends that have those same questions, are you willing to reason with them, not just to tell them that they're wrong or avoid the conversation altogether? Because, you know, at our parties, we always avoid politics, religion, you know, all the the stuff that actually matters. We don't want to talk about. 
Are we willing to, to reason with people and entertain and listen, entertain the questions and not just tell people you're wrong or avoid the, the conversation altogether, but to reason with people? This is what he was teaching his followers, his disciples to do, to go and reason with people in their neighborhoods, in their houses, where they were. We have people in our lives that need to be reasoned with. How about preaching? It says preaching. He went preaching the gospel of the kingdom. You know, preaching means to announce as a herald. It doesn't mean to stand up and give a 20-minute TED Talk once a week. That's sometimes how I describe my profession um, to my friends who are not going to church at the present time. So yeah, well, I just I get paid to prepare a 20-minute TED Talk each week. Um, that's, not, that's not what the word preaching means in this passage. It means to announce as a herald, to proclaim with passion, emotion, conviction, You don't have to come up with all the eloquent words. Preaching doesn't require a degree. You just have to know what Jesus said and repeat it with deep conviction. Right? This kind of preaching is not reserved for a formal preacher role. As teaching or reasoning engages a person's mind, preaching engages our emotions, our deepest desires, and our convictions. You know, maybe you have an emotion or a feeling about something or someone that really has really stopped you from following Jesus fully. That doesn't scare Jesus. He's come to not preach at you, but to with conviction and passion announce just what you need to connect with you emotionally. How many times in Scripture does Jesus say it was, he was moved with compassion? He was, he was moved with compassion. He was moved. That's, he felt deeply what was going on in people's hearts around him. I know none of you have hurts or hang-ups emotionally that you know don't make sense, but that you still hold on to them, and they prevent you from doing what you know is right. I know that doesn't apply to anyone in this room, only me. Jesus has come to preach to your heart, not to look down onto you, but to connect with you emotionally and with passion, announce just what your heart needs. And that's what he was training his followers to do, to connect with people emotionally and to to announce with passion and conviction the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, the good news, the freedom, that the kingdom was at hand. And healing. Ushers, can you help and pass out communion? We want to receive um, communion today. And as we prepare prepare for that, um, just want to look at this this last point. It says, Jesus went around... healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria. They brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them all. Healing is not magic. We are so inundated with magic all the time. Stories of superheroes 
and super kingdoms and stories that have magic working in them and good magic and bad magic. And I'm not hating on magic. I, they're great stories. And oftentimes there's, there's, there's still great morals and good and evil and all kinds of, there's wonderful things about it. But if we're not careful, we can kind of lump it all together. And it's like healing is magic. But healing is not magic. Healing is supernatural. Magic is counterfeit because magic claims to be in the spell itself. Healing points to the kingdom of God. The rule of God present in Jesus Christ. Healing follows the gospel of the kingdom or the good news that the rule and reign of God present in the man, Jesus Christ, healing follows Jesus around everywhere he goes, then and now. It is a sign that accompanies Jesus. And this kind, this kind of healing is not reserved for a formal healing evangelist role. As teaching or reasoning engages our mind and preaching engages our emotions, healing engages our body, our physical self, our hurts, our wounds, our dis-ease. Maybe you have a hurt or a sickness that prevents you from following Jesus fully. Maybe you know somebody that has a hurt or a sickness that really prevents them from following Jesus fully. You're not alone. This doesn't scare Jesus. Jesus came to heal your hurts. And the healings we read about in this passage and others in the New Testament really are miracles. And so I want to read to you a paragraph. This is from an old theologian, well, old for for us. It was early 1800s. Um, And he was, um, this is Barnes' notes on the Gospels. And um, Mr. Barnes wrote about this specific passage, this paragraph. Um, And I think it will help us understand what it is, what healing is, and why it's important. A miracle is an effect produced by divine power. It is not a violation of the laws of nature, but a suspension of their usual operation for a more important purpose. For instance, the regular effect of death is that the body returns to corruption over time. These ordinary laws of chemistry are suspended by the operation of life, a power superior to those laws of death. When one who claims to be from God suspends death's regular effects and gives life to a dead or dying or broken body for a more important purpose, it is a miracle. Such an effect is clearly the result of divine power. No other being but God can do it. When, therefore, Christ and his disciples exercised this power, it was clear evidence that God approved of their message, that he had commissioned them, that they were authorized to declare his will. God would never give this attestation to a false doctrine. When I read that last statement in these notes... I had to read it over again, and there was a question that started bubbling up in my heart that I think I was really afraid to honestly ask. It said, God would never give this attestation to a false doctrine. 
And I don't know about you, but not as many miracles follow me around as Jesus. Or the disciples. Or the Apostle Paul. Or really anyone in the early church in the New Testament. So the question I'm probably maybe still a little afraid, I'm just acknowledging that before you because we need to ask this together. The question I'm afraid is, is the gospel that I am teaching, now I'm not talking about from the pulpit, I'm saying the gospel that I carry around and I'm reasoning with my friends about, the gospel that I am entertaining and presenting in those in those state in those in those situations with my friends and coworkers and associates and different things is that gospel that I'm teaching or reasoning so diluted that God cannot attest to it with miracles is the gospel that I'm preaching or that I'm relating emotionally to the people around me is it diluted to a point that God cannot attest to it by with miracles. Is, I mean, think about the gospel that you are reasoning with your friends over. Are you reasoning with them? Think about the gospel you're preaching, the passion, the conviction. Are you really settled on Jesus? It's not the gospel that we talk about in here that matters in that sense. It does matter. But in this sense, it's, it's not that gospel. It's not the gospel that I, you know, I wholeheartedly proclaim is true here. It's the gospel that I bring out to reason with my friends about. It's the gospel that I preach or that I relate emotionally to my friends and my coworkers and my neighbors about. It's that gospel. Is that gospel a gospel that God can attest to with miracles? I want it to be so. I want miracles because miracles attest, they are a sign to the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ walking in the earth, who came to set people free, who came to take death captive and to silence the enemy and to destroy the works of darkness and sin. I don't want signs to follow me for me so that I can be cool, be part of something exciting. But that God... could attest to that gospel and set people free because it brings him glory. Are you hungry for that gospel? Later in in Matthew, it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Almost everything in the kingdom comes by hunger. Are you really hungry Or is there unbelief in your heart? Is there turmoil in your heart? Is there laziness in your heart? Sometimes there's laziness in my heart. Is there fear over what people will think? Is there 
uh, a clutching or a grasping at my rights and my the privilege that I enjoy in whatever social settings I find myself. Have those things diluted or dressed up the gospel to a point that God cannot attest to it with miracles? I'm not pointing my finger at anyone, including myself. I'm not bringing condemnation to anyone, nor am I complaining or critiquing any church anywhere. I'm just asking. I want to be able to honestly ask and be willing to do whatever the answer requires. As the gospel that saved me, the gospel I am sharing is the gospel that saved you, the gospel that you are sharing. Come and follow Jesus. And as we receive communion, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight says, to examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. So let's examine our hearts this morning. After we receive communion, we're going to sing one more song. And I would just encourage you, if you need to do business with God, if you need to repent, if you need to ask for another filling, a refilling, a refiring, come and praise God with me. Come and worship him with me. Come and join me at the altar. I have that question to ask myself to ask of him. And so God, we hold this bread. Lord, in this bread, we see your faithfulness. Not faithfulness in a moment to do one hard thing, but the faithfulness of a lifetime to be broken for me and for us. That we would be able to receive the kingdom of God the rule and reign of Jesus Christ over our life and all the rewards and benefits and promises and beauty and glory and delight that come with it. Thank you for being broken for us. And when we hold this cup, I see the total obedience to the end. I see in this cup a line in the sand where the might of God said, no more. Sin and death have seen their bitter end. This is the blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many for the remission of sin that we are cleansed of all unrighteousness by the blood of one who is righteousness we drink this new wine of the new kingdom in Jesus name